Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Uh, how are you? I don't have any shoes on. Oh, the fine, finally. So, in all these weeks that we've been doing the, uh, <laughs> we've been doing the podcast, um, I've hoped that Ed would take the hint when, upon entering my house, he would see all the shoes on the hall floor. But it's you, you haven't until today. It you were nudged into it. Well, I, I, dear listener, in order to understand this, I had to listen to Jeff's other podcast, <laughs> Adrift. Or rather, somebody who works for me listened to it and said, you've got to take your bloody shoes off because Jeff's complaining on his other podcast that you're not taking your shoes off. It's where I air all my grievances. I also like the way that you distance yourself from It wasn't me that listened to it. I wouldn't listen to <laughs> well, it. Actually, I did, works to be fair, I did listen to the other episode, but what I didn't get to the bit where you said to, I should right. take my shoes off. But look, I think I hopefully... Hopefully by episode 412, we'll develop the kind of relationship where you can say to me, Ed, would you mind taking your shoes off? I, I want you to, to, in order to make you feel appreciated, yeah. I want to let you know that um, to be here recording this today, I declined an invitation from the McCartney family, Paul, Stella and Mary. I know that is pretty impressive. They were they're doing a launch for a new Meat Free Monday film and they'd invited me along to a well, little... Why did they invite you? I, I don't know to make up numbers really. Maybe was it very late the invitation? It was. It was yeah, somewhat that, late. It is somewhat off putting when you get those late <laughs> invitations, isn't it? Because you do think that they've gone through everybody else, yes, and they've ended up sort of. I, I, sometimes I get those too. Do you? Like, you, you sort of think mm, there's a sort of slightly three day rule if you get invited three days in advance. <laughs> so it's kind of a bad sign, really, isn't it? I, I was just putting it down to poor organisational skills. Maybe that's on that true. Maybe that's true. Do you ever do a meet free Monday? Do you ever? Ever dabble? I mean, not sort of knowingly. I remember Paul McCartney's campaign about it. Because this is the point they're making. Um, it's it's one of the biggest things you can do as an individual. And they've made a little film about it. There's a big UN climate change um, conference next week. And they're releasing this film in the run-up to that. The, the, the meat issue is a big issue. I'm, I'm not belittling it. I think it is important. It takes 30 bathtubs to make one be- of, of water to make one beef burger. Yeah, my children were telling me something similar. It's quite shocking, isn't it? Were they trying to get out of having a bath? (laughs) Maybe. Just using it as an excuse, Um, the environment. Have you dabbled? In vegetarianism? Oh, full on. Are you a vegetarian? Yeah, yeah. You don't wear it, you don't sort of, you don't wear it on your sleeve, your vegetarianism, do you? No, I just sit in silent judgment. That's that's the way I, I like to approach it. But do you know whether the miso and chocolate cookies have animal fats in them? I'm pretty so they're not vegan, but they're definitely definitely veggie. So yeah. you're pretty thorough. I'm I'm pretty thorough. I was offered a wine gum before, and I had to check to see if there's any gelatin in it. That's impressive. Yeah, I look at you in a new light now. You're saying this like you were surprised that I have any kind of ethics or principles. No, no, I'm just it's just you know my estimation of you goes up even further, <laughs> and you're excused the no shoes policy. <laughs> Shall we talk about what the theme of today's episode is then? Yeah, we're talking about votes at sixteen and. 
and the wider situation of young people in our politics and our society. And I think it is a really important subject. Uh, we've got a private member's bill, which is trying to get through the House of Commons on votes at 16 by the Labour MP, uh, Jim McMahon. And we have a brilliant lineup of people. We've got an MP who has actually spoke in the debate in 1968 when the age uh, of voting was lowered to 18, uh, Professor Alan Williams, and he's coming in and I'm really excited to meet him. He's a supporter of votes at 16, but he was there in the House of Commons 50 years ago, the last time a change in the age uh, was made. And wow. so we'll talk to him about that debate and what he thinks now and what's changed since then. He was also the youth officer for the Labour Party for I think six years under the Labour, seven years under the Labour leader Hugh Gateskill. So he's got incredible history. Uh, we're going to be talking to Scottish Tory leader Ruth Davidson, who is unusual for a Tory because she's a supporter of votes at 16. And we'll be asking her why she supports it and why her party tends not to. And then Anna Barker, who's chair of the British Youth Council and a former member of the Youth Parliament that also that sits in that, that occasionally sits in Parliament. Uh, in the House of Commons, and we'll be talking to her about Votes at 16 and the wider issues. We also have coming in to pitch ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. Tiff Stevenson, who's a very funny comedian, you might have seen her on things like 8 Out of 10 Cats and Mock the Week, so Tiff will be coming in too. Um, so you were 16 in 1985. Yeah. Just thinking about this sort of 16 and 17-year-olds, can you can you introduce us to 16-year-old Ed? Manic Minor. Um, Again! Well, what was I doing? I was pretty, I was pretty, pretty engaged in politics. It was sort of the, it was the, we just had the miners' strike. Um, not the manic miners' strike. Not the manic miners' strike. The, uh, you know, it was Thatcher in her prime. So, you know, if you lived in London, in a, in a, you know, in Camden where I lived, you know, you were pretty political. Had you had your tiny heart broken by that stage? No, sixteen. Not no, romantically, crushes. only politically. <laughs> What about you? I had had my tiny heart broken on a number of occasions. Really? Including by this girl, Rachel Leonard, who was my big crush at school, who um, who told me I would go out with you, but all my friends would laugh at me. That's so what a devastating thing to say to a 16-year-old. you still in touch with her? She hasn't accepted my friend request on Facebook, if that's what you're asking. If she's listening, can she sort of... Maybe she can ring in. <laughs> and we, we can, could, talk, we could address this. We can talk, talk, talk about this historical injustice. I think we need a sort of Truth and Reconciliation Commission with, with Rachel Leonard, don't we? What's your reason to be cheerful this week? My reason to be cheerful, I've, I've struggled, I'll be honest, I've struggled this week. So I've decided to turn into... You've had Montezuma's revenge, basically, haven't you? <laughs> I wasn't going to bring that up, yeah. But it's been, uh, it's been an unsettled week. <laughs> Um, you had a particular experience which was not very cheerful, didn't you? No, I had an, an, an explosive episode in the downstairs toilet of a 90s pop star. But I don't want to say, remain nameless. Don't want to say any more about it than that. So the negative... If you listen to his other podcast, you might get it at greater length. Yeah. <laughs> my, my, so I'm going to turn a negative into a positive. I made the world's worst risotto this week. Can't have been that bad. Oh my! It was it was beyond no exaggeration. I started cooking at eight o'clock. We sat down to eat at ten to eleven, and it was borderline inedible. It We've just had been cooking for three hours. It just wouldn't cook. It was still rock hard. At one stage, I FaceTimed my brother-in-law in Chicago, who is a chef, and pointed my phone at the pan <laughs> to say, "Sam, what am I doing wrong?" And he said, "It looks like you're doing it right. Just keep adding more stock and keep stirring." I was stirring. I've got repetitive strain injury from the amount of stirring I was doing. I used two liters of stock, and it was 
still what rock did hard. The, the interesting question is, what did Sarah say, though? Did she say this is inedible? She she wasn't happy. At, what, at, at just gone <laughs> 10, she said, why don't you just throw it away and we'll order a pizza? But at that, <laughs> I felt I was in too deep at that stage. I think it is quite a dilemma for the partner or spouse when the other person is cooking and it turns out to be a disaster. Mm. Because it's sort of you want to say it's a disaster, but then the, you, know, you they don't want to really rub it in, do they? It's a, it's a dilemma, yeah. You've got to be sort of reasonably. My, you see, my children are not polite at all. They, I mean, often my eight year old in particular will come down and say, "What is that? It's disgusting." <laughs> and I say, "Daniel, you're not supposed to say that. That is rather rude." Uh, um, so he's and food- sometimes he'll be right, and sometimes he'll not be right. But you know, he's quite judgmental. He's a food critic for the Sunday Times. He in waiting, really is. Isn't he? That's his vocation. He's pretty. He's pretty. Crazy critical yeah. uh, so, so that's mine having the achievement of making the world's worst risotto um, so my reason to be cheerful is that i've been nominated for an award what i know it's surprising um it's the audio production awards 2017 uh, and i think they uh maybe they were short of short of nominees <laughs> anyway and i've been nominated in category number 17 the new voice award and and the description is for exceptional presenters who have either recently entered the broadcasting or podcasting world or gained significant mainstream recognition for the first time uh so you know i'm very grateful to this uh, organization for nominating me and uh I sort of think I should do my speech now, really, shouldn't I? Because I probably won't win. Okay. so uh, on the... I'd like to thank you. I'd like to thank my mother. I'd like to thank everyone who made this possible. Lindsay, Alex and Emma. You know, that's the kind of thing you say, isn't it? Yeah. It's great. not for me. It's for the people yeah. around me. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. And it's the team. Yeah. Exactly. You should just stand up and say it's all you're doing. Do you this think? was all my doing. Well, Nobody I'm not going to win. Fit, well, I'm, you know, I don't believe I'll win. Mm. So, and I'll be very, very smiley if somebody else wins. That's that's the other principle, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Because I suppose um, as the camera sort of, you know, pans to me. God, it's a good job they don't do that on election night, isn't it? It's true. You can sort of hide away on election night. Yeah, and then when you can finally muster up that fake smile, I did have to ch- ring David Cameron to congratulate him when I lost. Did he answer? He did, actually. He answered rather quickly. (laughs) He seemed quite keen to take the call. (laughs) Funnily enough. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, it's a real privilege to be joined now by Professor Alan Williams, who was the Labour MP for Hornchurch from 1966 to 1970 and 1974 to 79, and who spoke in the 1968 debate to lower the voting age to 18. That's the last time the voting age was changed. And Alan was also the Labour Party youth officer for seven years between 1955 and 1962, when he worked both with Clement Attlee and uh, the Labour leader Hugh Gateskill. Alan, thank you so much for joining us. No, not at all. Um, it would be fascinating for our listeners, first of all, before we get into the details about the voting age, just say a little bit about uh, how you came to be the Labour Party Youth Officer and what your job was and who you worked with. No, well, I, I finished my national service and saw an advertisement and saw it was in there that the Labour Party was going to make an appointment of a national youth officer would cover the whole country. And I think I'm right in saying that you were interviewed by Harold Wilson, Barbara Castle yes, and yes. Alice Bacon, Alice also Bacon. a yes. very well-known yes. Labour MP yes. about whom Rachel Reeves had just written a book, a yes. former education minister. Uh, that's right. Yes. And you got the job and 
to tell us a little bit about working with Clement Attlee, because that is a remark. It's remarkable to sort of talk to you and to feel like we're sort of reaching back into history, you know, to to somebody who was working with Clement yes. Attlee. Well, I, you see, I met Attlee. I was introduced to Attlee when I got the job in '55, and I didn't. Uh, he didn't. Uh, he sent for me once or twice, but the conversations were never. Um, he was so busy. He was a man of few words as man well. Man of few words, and he was leader of the opposition. I mean, uh, uh, when he was re- replaced, I met Gates School, and Gates School was much more enthusiastic about my work. And he said, I'll always back you. I always listen to that. But but I but I seem to re- yes. recall that you went on the 1959 election tour, so the equivalent of Jeremy oh, Corbyn's yes. 2017 election tour with Clement Attlee. Yes, I, I did right indeed. I did, yes. And you had a particular job, didn't you? Yeah, I, I, my job was to make sure that he read his brief because yeah. I had a brief coming, arriving every day on chat with the motorbike used to come with me the yeah. one. And in addition uh, uh, to that, just to look after him, and uh, they told me that Clement Attlee had the reputation of being a very bad tipper. Right. He went to a restaurant. He, he was, you know, he just didn't tip, and they thought that would be bad for his image. So I had a... Uh, a bag of sixpences. <laughs> so people were worried about image even in those days. Oh, yes. Even in the days before Twitter, people were worried about oh, yes. news of bad tips getting round. <laughs> Absolutely. So I used to creep round him when he'd gone and put sixpences down. And, and what, was the, what was the biggest, in those seven years that you were the youth officer, what would you say was the biggest issue that you were championing for young people? I, I wanted to have some meat, not just talking about how good the Labour Party was. I had to speak to a, a, a generation which I'd just alienated myself because the first job I was given was to disband the Labour League of Youth. Right. <laughs> and because then, it was seen as too left-wing. Yes, right. yes. And after that, to resurrect something new in its place. And they didn't have... Uh, so I, I didn't have much ammunition. So I thought, well, I'm going to beef myself up on grievances about being national servicemen, not getting the vote, I mean, they were called up, sometimes injured. National servicemen didn't have the vote because they weren't old enough. No. And you, one of the things you were pushing for... Say they should have it. ...was to lower... The, just for national servicemen or...? No, no, for everybody. Right. For, for all. Right so, and that takes us neatly to the uh, debates in 1968 about lowering the age of voting to 18. Um, tell us what you remember about that, because you spoke in that debate. I did indeed, yes, and, and in terms of the arguments for and against, what were people saying in 1968 about about lowering the voting age from 21 to 18? Well, I mean, it, it, it divided in the Labour Party. They thought that they were asking the young people to enter into the age of maturity, entering into contracts, which they might not be able to handle very well, get themselves into difficulties. But remember this, the young people had plenty of money at that time. I mean, never enough money, who's going to say it for young people? Yeah. But they had plenty of money. It was a big purchasing ability. And that's when the so-called teenage market emerged, Mm. And it's a result of that teenage market emerging that I thought that I should uh, beef that argument up a bit. So I went to see uh, the man who was largely responsible for it, whose name was Dr. Abrahams. And I went to his home. I wrote and he said, he's very pleased to receive me. Um, And in no time, we hit it off right away. And I said, would you, uh, I'm thinking of making a campaign around your your articles, I think you're on to something here. And he said, well, I'm most grateful. Arguing that young people should be given the vote. Should be given the vote. 
And he said, yes, I suppose I perhaps ought to have mentioned that. I said, well, I, I'm going to mention it because I'm the youth officer and I do have a right to, to argue it. So you began the campaign. Yeah, the, yeah I did. And that yeah. would have been in the early 60s? Yeah, in, in the early 60s, yeah. And not everyone was in favour. I got into terrible trouble. Really? Well, well with Morgan Phillips, the general secretary. He and started I'm, telling you off, did he? Yeah, well, he, well, he, he was always nice to me. I mean, I liked Morgan. But um, but it wasn't it, Labour Party policy at the time. It's not policy. The... Stop treading on areas where we've not agreed on policy. Uh, but then I had a lot of support from Tom Dryberg, supporting me, uh, uh, um, Barbara Castle, Tony Greenwood, because they were then looked upon as the left on the National right. Executive Committee. So I had their support, um, and so the party didn't um, at that time have a set policy at all. But I was allowed to speak about it. So you campaigned for it. Then there was the debate in Parliament and the voting age was uh, lowered. Did you feel feel afterwards, after 1968 or 1969 when the law came in, did it produce a big transformation in politics? No, no, it was disappointing. Unfortunately, uh, at that time, Labour's policy was against commercial uh, broadcasting from ships in the Thames. Um, uh, And so uh, that was counterproductive because most of the young people then started to vote Tory. Right. And it was the reason why I lost my seat in 1970. Really? Yes. Over the ships? Yeah. Over the commercial broadcast? Yes, yeah. oh, yes, very much This so. is Radio... Yeah, the Pirate Radio Pirate Caroline. Radio, and yeah, radio Caroline, Caroline, yeah. Caroline mm. and so on. And I, I had to use the argument that the BBC were going to up their game and so on, which they did eventually, of course. Launching and Radios they, 1 and 2. Yes, yeah. they did. So fast forward 50 years or so, yes. and we're now debating again whether to lower the voting yes. age from 18 to 16. Yes. As somebody who was a veteran of those debates 50 years yes. ago, tell us what you think about this this campaign? Well, I, I'm very much um, in favour of votes at 16. I think it's the right thing to do. Um, people ha- do mature, have matured uh, uh, further from the 60s. Um, and the present leader is, has got seems to have made friends with many of the young people. And so it's an issue worth thinking about. Um, on the other hand, the concerns I expressed about the va- in the 1967 debate, and I expressed it even saying I was in favour of it, was that I was frightened that, that young people would enter, would, reach, would, would be treated as the age of maturity, and they would be able to sign contracts and get themselves into difficulties. So you were worried about the fight in that those debates. You were worried about the financial aspect, yes, not the voting no, issue, not but voting. the but the financial yes. aspect of young people having mortgages yes. and so on. That was your yeah. anxiety. And the argument was that if you gave the person the vote, that must be the age of majority. You see, you couldn't separate the thing. And so in 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 the, the debate, I mean, at that, at that time, I. I was given three minutes by the speaker. Some things don't change. Time time limits (laughs) on debates don't change. Um, Because most of the other people, particularly on uh, both sides, are pretty garrulous, lot they were on this issue. Um, But I had, I was, you know, wanted to just get in. This is the campaign you'd been championing after all, ever since you'd been the youth officer and so on. So I went up to the speaker, who was Selwyn Lloyd at that time. And I said, look, I really want to do the I, I, you know, I could move this. To, I want to move this a bit away from uh, 
the mechanics of electioneering and so on. And the speaker said, yeah, it is a bit dark. He said, but uh, I'm committed to calling all sorts of people. He said, I'll give you three minutes before the summing up. <laughs> so, so you got your three minutes. <laughs> and there it was. Well, that's very good. And people can look it up. We'll provide a link to it on our, on yes, our, web, yes. on our Facebook page to, yeah, so that yeah. people can get yeah, a copy yeah. of it. And just in a, in a sort of bigger context, I mean, looking back over the last of the period of your career and you know you left school at uh, 14 i believe you know you yes. you, you uh, were in the rf you uh, youth officer labor yeah. mp yeah. lectured i mean some people feel quite miserable at the moment with brexit and everything um and one of the points of this podcast is to it's called reasons to be cheerful to make people cheerful i mean give us the long view as if you look back over your career and so on presumably you see progress Oh yes, oh yes. There's no, no. Uh, it's a pleasanter place to live now than it was in, the, in the, these years. Uh, in the fifties, it was miserable. I mean, not just because we were being rationed, but the, uh, the, it was a question of. This may seem strange to you, but it was a question of having too much money and too few goods. <laughs> so it was, when that was corrected. Then we now uh, have the opposite problem. Right? Yes, <laughs> yes. have the opposite problem. Yeah. I bought all the latest clothes, you know, from good tailors and overcoats, and I earned so much money when I was working on the river, because uh, over time we were working for exports and so on. I earned so much money that I hired um, a box in the, the Garrison Theatre, which was quite a famous theatre then, for a year. Oh, <laughs> and, wow. And I took all my girlfriends and other people as well, and friends, male and female, of course, to... to and they Your thought, wife just rolled her eyes. That <laughs> was just, before I married just, just, long... I'm sure it was. I'm sure <laughs> yeah. it was. And uh, I, I have one personal question to ask you, which is that I believe you used to go and watch my father. I did, um, yes. Lecture. I did, yes. Your your father used to turn up, um, not on a regular basis, but fairly predictable that he would come. If you said he was coming, he did. For the Universities of Left Review that used to meet him, Ronnie Scott's. And it used to meet in, I didn't know this, he used to meet in Ronnie Scott's jazz club. My dad used to talk to me about Ronnie Scott's. Yes. Um, but I didn't quite know or at least no, remember he, he, that, he, that they had po- politics at yeah, Ronnie Scott's. I'll show you he did. And I used to go with Peter Shaw. We used to go off into Peter's car. We'd drive off. And was it to sort of keep an eye on my dad? or? Well, um, he wasn't really in the Labour Party at no, that point. No, no, you're quite correct. There was an element of that in it. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was expected to write reports, you see. Right. Uh, but I didn't, I mean... It, I, I thought I, he was mostly harmless. I didn't think he was a threat to the Labour Party. Right, okay. <laughs> Phew. <laughs> Look, I just want to say, Alan, thank you so much for joining yeah. us. It's been an absolute privilege to hear about not just your reminiscences, yeah. but your views about the voting age, both uh, back then uh, in 68 and now. So thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you for inviting me. Let's now turn from somebody who was a Labour MP uh, at the time of the vote, voting age being changed to 18, to somebody who is a prominent conservative uh, and one of not that many conservatives who actually supports votes at 16, and that's Ruth Davidson, who's now on the line. Ruth, thanks for, for joining us. You recently said after the experience in Scotland during the referendum that you became a fully paid-up member of the Votes at 16 club. Can you tell us a bit about what convinced you, what, what changed your mind? 
Yeah, I've thrown my hands up on this one, Ed. I'm a, I'm a total convert. I had gone in quite sceptical um, when all of the decision-making about what the, the franchise would be for the um, Scottish independence referendum. Uh, I wasn't sure, I have to say, about votes at 16. There's not that many other countries around the world that, that use it. And for all of those sort of same arguments about, well, you're you know not allowed to get married in some parts of the UK without your parents' approval or to join the army, etc., you, you know, where do you set that level? And 18 always seemed all right to me. Um, but, but having gone through that process, and it was, it was quite a long process in Scotland, we had more than 18 months worth of campaigning. Uh, and we were in and out, we did schools events, college events, all the rest of it. And some of the most engaged, articulate, questioning, open-minded people that were out there were people that were in that 16 to 18 age room. And, you know, you will never um, have a tougher audience than the one that's sitting there with their smartphone out, Googling your answers to make sure you don't get any questions wrong, uh, as in lifetime while you're doing it. So, so yeah, I, I have to say my experience from, from the Scottish referendum um, was that there was absolutely no distinction between people in that 16 to 18 age group and, and those who were older. In fact, uh, dare I say it, there were probably more more impressive people in the lower age range than, than, than maybe somewhere, somewhere else in the age range. And what do you say to fellow politicians, including on your own side, who say young people are too immature or don't have sufficient knowledge to vote? Because you'll have heard that argument put. What do you say to them? really angry actually when I hear people of, of any stripe saying that sort of young people aren't political or, or, or anything like that. Actually you'll find quite often that young people are maybe less party political than they used to be but in terms of political engagement and engagement on the issues you will find that particularly young people because they're able to harness um, you know the, the world's information at their fingertips can be some of the best informed because they're more adept at seeking out what it is that they want to do and also being able to club together with other like-minded people through um, either through social media or, or some other form of, of, of virtual or online space. So um, I think that young people in this country and, and other countries are intensely political and some of them seek to be political on a specific issue or a set of specific issues rather than necessarily believing that they've got to... Um, sign up to everything that a single political party believes and that's my tribe and that's the end of it so um i think maybe there's a more transactional organization or or or, or organization amongst young people uh, or transactional nature to their vote they, they want to know what they're going to get in return for it because a, a vote's a precious precious thing and i think that keeps politicians like us on our toes and you're unusual in being a conservative supporting votes at 16 do you think this is emblematic of a wider issue your party has with young people? And what would your advice be to other members of your party on this issue? Um, I, I don't necessarily think that that's a, a fair analysis. I mean, the person that um, sort of uh, probably headlined this for our party was uh, Chloe Smith, uh, the MP who's been, you know, basically since our uh, election through a by-election um to the House of Commons has, has has been on this issue for a long, long time and has, has brought a number of her colleagues with her. And, and um, you know, she's been working really hard on this. I, I mean, I do think that there is a sense in terms of the voting age that it is established and it works pretty well. And up until the very re recent general election, there was some evidence to suggest that younger people maybe didn't choose to vote um, in the same sort of numbers and percentages as people further up the age range. I think the, the, the SNAP general election in June blew that argument out of the water and, and you saw um, younger voter engagement sort of rocket. So I think that, 
you know, there's a lot of people that, that probably need to sit down and look at this again. And, and this has been a journey for Parliament all through the time. You know, when, when women were given the votes 99 years Absolutely. ago, it was only if you were over a certain age that you were allowed to and if you were of means, etc., etc. And the way in which the franchise for voting UK-wide has changed, it, it has always been by small steps. Well, maybe this is the next small step that we need to take. And I think I'm right in saying that in Scotland... Um, Young people are going to be able to vote in in local elections, but their counterparts in England won't be able to. Do you think that the sort of continuing Scottish experience on this might drive change further? Well, well, I think that most people in politics like to have evidence um, to support their viewpoint. And I think in Scotland at the moment, because in terms of the franchise, that's controlled at both local uh, elections and Scottish parliamentary elections by uh, Holyrood, and, and there's an acceptance of votes at 16 there, um, that we will start building up that evidence and perhaps people in the rest of the United Kingdom will want to look to Scotland to see how well it's working or otherwise. And, and the evidence is there if people choose to look at it. Final question, Ruth. The title of this podcast is Reasons to be Cheerful. Do you think, give us a sort of prediction. Do you you think this is an issue whose time is coming? Do you think we'll see your party joining other parties in supporting it right across the UK and and, and it'll actually happen soon? Because people have been talking about it now for some time. Do you think it'll actually, do you think we're coming to the moment it might happen? Well, look, I'm, I'm a pretty optimistic person, Ed, and I think that there's a whole host of reasons to be cheerful, particularly as you look to the younger generation. Um, if you're looking at a whole host of indicators in terms of uh, illegal drug use, in terms of um, unwanted pregnancies, etc., etc., you're seeing a, a generation which is actually bucking lots of trends that we thought were irreversible. Um, I think the societal engagement, the political engagement of our young people uh, is increasing. I think that it's good to see. I think the number of people that want to be involved in politics from a younger age is growing uh, and that's tremendously exciting for people who are involved in political parties uh, and I think that perhaps it is only a matter of time before we see the franchise extended to that age range too. Ruth Davidson, thanks so much for joining us. No problem, good to speak to you. Let's now hear from somebody who actually is a young person and that's Anna Barker, Chair of the British Youth Council and former member of the Youth Parliament for Dorset. Anna, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here, thank you. What got you involved as a matter of interest in Dorset? Yeah, I um, so I grew up in the middle of nowhere. So anyone who knows Dorset knows that, that that's a kind of cor- common thing. Um, so somewhere near Dorchester and Yeovil, uh, a 300-person village in the middle of nowhere. And Give I, a shout-out for your village. Uh, Sidling St Nicholas, big up. Yeah, nice. <laughs> um, so Sidling St Nicholas, um, and it's a teeny tiny village. And I um, came from a wonderful family, but a low-income background. And I was a young carer as well. And I was about eight miles away from the local town. Um, and I did didn't have a car, the means to get a driving license, etc. Um, and there are only actually two buses a week in my village, one on a Wednesday and one on a Saturday, which I, I don't understand. Where are people going? How yeah. are they not coming back? Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was wild. Um, so I just started a campaign um, and I and I made a petition. At I what said, age was that? Um, I think I was about 15. Um, so I started a campaign. I said, you know, we should have better services for young people, better transport services. Um, I then got involved in my local youth council, some amazing youth workers supported me and a bunch of other young people and we actually uh, presented that petition uh, to, to Downing Street about a year later um, so I've got that snazzy picture in front of number 10 which is great um, as, as do you I'm sure How's, how, no, I, <laughs> I missed out on that I'm afraid uh, that's another story uh, I mean that look that is incredibly inspiring now we've been talking about votes at 16 from sort of 
older people's perspectives, if you like, <laughs> right across the age generation. Hey, hey, age generation. Calm down here. I mean, us, us millennials, I mean, we have sympathy for the slightly... <laughs> yeah. You're a millennial in, in very good disguise. Uh, um, tell us from your point of view, as somebody who was a member of the Youth Parliament, somebody who campaigns on these issues, why this is so important. Yeah, f- firstly, I'm, I'm fairly used to adults or older people talking about youth issues. So, so don't worry, don't, don't, <laughs> I won't take offence. I just want to be clear about my wokeness here. <laughs> <laughs> just oh, virtue signalling. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, and then, so why, why it's important. So as a campaign, it's been going around actually for about 20 years. So two decades, people have been reaching out and saying that we want 16 and 17 year olds to have a right to vote. And it's not so crazy, actually. So 16-year-olds, you wake up on your 16th birthday, you can get married, you can, uh, you have to pay taxes, you can join the army, you can have sex. Uh, but unfortunately, you can't vote in your general election. So you can't actually go out and say, these are things I care about, this is what I want you to represent me on, these are the issues that I care about, and have that position within society. And it just feels really disconnected. Like the idea of maturity, that you're not mature enough. And all that this kind is of the stuff. thing, it just seems patron. The, the argument is just one of being patronising. Like, mm-hmm. Oh, you, you don't quite understand the world. There's not even another argument that people advance particularly. Can right? I be devil's advocate for a second? Look, what about the people who say, well, you can get married, but only with parental permission. You can join the army, but you can't serve on the front line. Uh, so, you know, there are sort of restrictions here. I mean, it's not mm-hmm. like there's complete freedom at six. Yes, you can have sex, but, you know, there's, there isn't complete freedom across the board at 16, is there? No, definitely not. But, you know, that's a sliding scale from the age of 12. And then it goes all the way up to the age of 18. And I think what we're saying is, okay, we're putting putting young people under the microscope. We're saying these are all the reasons you're not good enough and not able enough to make this decision. But when have we ever asked adults that same question? When have we ever said, are you informed enough, X person on the street, Jim or Jane or whoever, are you informed enough to make a decision about uh, this country and politics and the kind of structures that surround it? Like, no, we never ask those people that. And we never provide that education. But now we're on the flip side. We're saying, oh, but you're not good enough. You're not informed enough. And it, yeah, it's patronising. And in your experience, are um, young people at that age politically engaged? Is that sort of across the border? It's just like weirdos like Ed was at 16. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, uh, from, from memory, I feel like at 15, 16, people were into issues, but maybe not mm. party politics in that way. Yeah, but that, that's still politics, isn't it? Yeah. it? Even though that you might be not campaigning down the streets for Labour or Tory, whoever, you still care about things. Mm. And that's politics. People still care about issues. And it, it might be youth issues. Yeah, it might be um, things about uh, university fees. It might be towards transport. It might be around a whole whole bunch of things around mental health, votes at 16. But young people care about other stuff as well, about jobs, about the economy. They care about the refugee crisis that's going on. And I think we can't misunderstand understand political engagement we can't assume just because they're not joining up to a huge political party that they're not political or they're not engaged in politics in some way because most people anyway aren't in a political party yeah exactly so again it's putting that scrutiny on young people that we don't even do on adults just in terms of the evidence on what young people want am i right in saying young people are a bit divided on this some people some young people are in favor of this some are against or, or is that wrong Oh, I think I think I have to say you're wrong. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so British Youth Council every year we do something called a make your mark ballot, 
And that's led by young people. So young people go out and ask other young people what they care about. And, All young um, people, not just the kind of young person I was at 16. <laughs> yeah, right. um, unless there are a million of you. So right. we, we got nearly a million votes this year. Um, so a million young people came out and told us what they care about. And we have done some analysis of who those young people are, the postcodes they come from, the, the households, the experiences they have. And it is really, truly representative of young people out there. Um, and the key issues they're saying that they care about is... Um, uh, votes at 16, that's come out as a top issue. They care about transport. They're looking at work experience, for the idea of work experience hubs or something like that for 11 to 18 year olds, um, protecting LGBT plus people and the rights that they have within society and also around a curriculum that prepares us for life. And that one kind of links in as well to votes at 16. The idea that, you know, we have PSHE sessions, maybe SRE back in the day, um, and we learn about a bunch of stuff. But instead, let's learn about things that we care about as young people and the things that we actually think would make us uh, full and well-rounded humans. And that takes me neatly on to, to what something I did want to ask you about, which is citizenship education. One of the things that I find when I go into schools is that lots of young people do are sympathetic on the vote 16 if you're in favor of it but they also say we want to be properly taught i mean there is a big and the the bill that jim mcmahon the labor mp is proposing also tries to improve citizenship education that is a big part of this isn't it mm-hmm. absolutely like what we're not saying is let's just give them the vote and then we just expect people to inform themselves or educate themselves Instead of saying, okay, because people are not educated enough, we will not allow them to engage. Such a better response to that is saying, okay, we give you the responsibility of having a vote, but let's also take that hand in hand with education. Let's make sure that you're learning about political structures and processes, um, helping you find out what you care about, what you're passionate about, what's going on in your local community. And I think that should be, yes, within formal education. That should be in our curriculum. But it's also, there's a bunch of organisations, British Youth Council, but others, helping young Young people with that journey, helping them to lobby and campaign in local government, local politics, making a difference. Now, now this week is a very good, important week to be doing this because mm-hmm. on Friday, the Youth pa- Parliament will have its annual sitting in the House of Commons, chaired by the Speaker John Burke, I believe. And, you know, one of the things that's true of those sessions is it's much better behaved than when the MPs sit <laughs> um, on the green benches. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'd encourage people to, to, to watch, a, to get a flavour of it. But Tell me about whether this is this is an important symbolic step, but it feels to me like there needs to be more done to make sure it's not just symbolism. Mm-hmm. How do we sort of integrate some of the important issues you talked about, whether it's curriculum for life or mental health issues or transport and so on, into decision making, not just into you know, the forum of a once a year parliamentary occasion. Mm-hmm, definitely. And I think that the perception is that, yeah, once once a year, some phenomenal and extremely impressive young people from all walks of life come into the House of Commons and debate on issues that other young people told them they care about. So they're not just preaching from their own behalf. They are talking with informed decision and opinion. Um, so they come in once a year, but that's a year long journey. So actually, they're part of a really full program to help them develop skills skills, uh, to develop different things within their experiences in order to make that that journey all the way throughout that year. Um, 
So one, that things are already happening. Things are happening. So whether it's UK Youth Parliament, there are youth select committees, there are a whole bunch of different structures that already imitate kind of adult structures that young people are engaging in to make that difference. But I think there's some other things that we could do. Um, young people want to see people like them making decisions. So whether that's a young person, whether that's someone who looks like them, the same background as them, the same education as them, the same ethnicity, gender, ability, disability, they want to see people like so them. So representative parliament. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, definitely. So representative parliament, uh, seeing people talk about things they care about. So I've listed, you know, a number of issues that, that we've identified as British Youth Council. Why, why aren't politicians talking about them? And a few reasons for that is maybe because young people can't vote, they can't don't come out in droves. Um, so we're not seeing politicians really caring at all about what young people care about. And And what about sort of more systematic local attempts at this? So young people controlling... Um, budgets for youth services, for mm. example, has been tried in some places, I think quite successfully. Youth mayors, are there some of the ways in which you can deepen this beyond, you know, mm -hmm. just a national occasion like like this Friday? Yeah. And again, that, that happened. So when I was um, in Dorset, when I was member of uh, Youth Parliament for Dorset a while ago, um, I was also chair of the, the local youth council. So most, if not all councils will have some kind of youth council. And that's a bunch of young people talking about, yes, youth issues, but also working with their local government to make dif a difference. So something that we did, for example, was to make sure that anyone who was recruited in a senior level of the children's services in Dorset, uh, there was a young person on that panel. And that was something really important, actually, for that young person to get the experience. But for, for my local government in Dorset, in Dorchester, to show that they care about young people's views. So again, I would challenge you to think that it's not happening, because it is. There are youth councils, there are young people, there are f amazing youth workers Do you want that there. Sadiq Khan, Andy Burnham, Steve Rotherham to have youth mayors? Should they be having youth mayors in... You know, London, Manchester, Merseyside? Yeah, yeah, why not? Absolutely. But like to care about that, not to just have youth mayors to kind of sit up on a panel um, and they kind of have the photo shoot and handing out certificates. Um, they they want young a young person. They can support that young person. Um, but also, you know, there's youth services to support those young people as well. You can't just throw young people into the limelight and say, okay, now you're going to represent your generation and, and say a bunch of things without an actual mandate or a structure behind that in order in order to do that successfully one other thing which is um you know we're talking about this but of course there's a background a context which is the deep sense that with brexit uh, with some of the decisions that have been made over the last seven years austerity and so on is young people have been you know have been really hard done by mm. how important is that context for this for this campaign and this urgency that you're talking about yeah, hugely. I think we saw, you know, the Brexit vote. Um, we saw Scottish referendum. So in Scotland, we saw 75% of young people turning out and voting. 75% is phenomenal. And that's not because Scottish young people are more or less engaged in general. It's because they were inspired. They were inspired about the issues. They're inspired by the politicians speaking to them, their local co communities coming together and speaking about it. So we're seeing these different things, Brexit, Scottish referendum, things happening around the world, the, the US elections, for example, and people are enraged, just like I did back in the day, you know, in my village, I got frustrated and I got annoyed. And I think that that natural feeling, that burning feeling within people is riling up. And I think that votes at 16 is inevitable now, it's going to happen, whether it's uh, the next few weeks, months, years, whenever it is, it's going to happen. And it's so exciting to see that young people are calling for this. 
adults are calling for this, um, but it can have a huge impact on the way young people engage in politics and society in general. Uh, Hannah Barker, thanks so much for joining us. Great, thank you. So Ed asks for your opinions on this on social media. This email comes from Alexander Ross, who says, in regards to lowering the voting age to 16, my immediate reaction is that most people this age are yet to face the kind of life events which help shape a voting decision, e.g. paying taxes, renting houses or having children. Equally, I worry that many are simply not mature enough to make a wise decision. I certainly wasn't. However, in reality, this is true across the entire age spectrum. On balance, though, my opinion is that lowering the voting age is absolutely necessary if only to pull back some of the voting power from our expanding older generation who systematically vote Tory brackets not to mention Brexit um what do we think about that I, I'm I don't really particularly buy the maturity uh, argument I just don't think you can say the cutoff is 16 as opposed to 18 no it feels completely arbitrary uh, and I think that um the arguments that Anna made about the things people can do at 16, the importance of the decisions. Brexit is an obvious example uh, on their their life. Yeah. Uh, makes it pretty strong. I actually think Edward Pennington is a good answer to Alexander Ross. He's emailed us and he says, I hate the opinions I had when I was 16, but I also hate the opinions I had last year when I was 22. <laughs> so so let's um so let's do it. I think that's I think that's quite a strong I think it's quite a strong point. This uh, this is good from Julia, who is from Brazil, who says, about votes at 16, I'm originally from a country which has 16 as the minimum age required to vote. And in my experience, it doesn't make a lot of difference overall for elections. Apathy levels continue to be high. And most young people I knew considered me strange for being excited about voting. However, the political culture is also very different. It's a young democracy and a presidential system. So it might not be a good example of what the future would look like. So it's, votes at 16 isn't a substitute for having policies and agenda aimed at young people. But I think it will actually concentrate the minds of politicians. One and a half million 16 and 17-year-olds being able to vote. I actually think it's, to, to state the obvious, more likely that politicians will be thinking, well, these, the, you know, nothing concentrates the minds more than people who can vote you out. Uh, and I think that is really important. I thought it was interesting as well what Alan was saying about... Um because you have this assumption that a 16 or a 17-year-old is going to be quite lefty, radical, and that would balance out the old conservatives. But Alan said when they lowered the voting age to 18, uh, the first thing that generation did was voted Tory. Booted, yeah. booted him out. Yeah. We've also got one from Hayley Andrews. Uh, she says in response to the tweet, I'm for lowering the voting age to 16. I'm a 15-year-old citizenship student from Hampshire, and I agree with lowering the voting age due to the fact that politics affects everyone, and it is increasingly becomes more relevant to younger people like myself. Due to current talks about university tuition fees, I feel as if having a say on such matters through the form of voting is beneficial, as voting at 16 gives time for government to make a change in what will impact us. And I think that's a pretty strong point. The thing I keep coming back to, and I've said this in a previous podcast, is at 16, you are allowed to create a human life. You're allowed to have sex. So you should be allowed to have a say in, in the world that kid is born into. I mean, it's, it's a, I, 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 don't, I see that as an absolutely watertight argument. I think it is a strong argument. And look, full disclosure, I've been a long-standing supporter of this. I, I think there's something else that's interesting, and that came up in the conversation with Ruth Davidson, and that is... The experience of 16 and 17-year-olds being able to have the vote in Scotland changed people's minds in Scotland. So we looked up some YouGov polling figures. Across the country, 30% uh, of people 
tend to agree or strongly agree that 16 and 17 year olds should have the vote. 48% disagree. But the situation is different in Scotland. 48% think they should have the vote. 32% disagree. But that wasn't always the case in Scotland, because as recently as 2013, so just before that referendum, 49% of people in Scotland said they shouldn't have the vote, and only 35% agreed. So what's so interesting is Ruth Davidson's experience, I think, reflects a wider trend in Scottish society, which is, you know, young people are some of the best questions, you know, were fully engaged in that referendum, and and that experience has changed people's minds. So I think it's one of these things that a bit like votes at 18, you know, once we do it, I think we won't look back. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. As ever, we would love to hear from you. If you've got any thoughts on what we've been talking about or ideas for future podcasts, you can email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Anything from Prezenjit yet? Prezenjit, where are you? Prezenjit, for those who weren't listening, uh, is the man who I didn't properly acknowledge at the theatre on two occasions, and he wrote into us about this uh, two episodes ago. Uh, I've apologised to Prezenjit. This is the third apology to Prezenjit. Prezenjit, can you just sort of put me out of my misery, please? <laughs> I wonder how. I wonder what he wants from. And if you know Prezenjit, like yeah. getting get in touch with him and sort of tell him that we're talking about yeah. him, or, or let us know his address, and then Ed can maybe send some flowers, a fruit basket. He could go around and apologise in person. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, this email comes from Jake Hall who says, Hi, Ed and Jeff. I wanted to chime in on the discussion on marijuana. I suffered from depression for about seven years of my life and was on a cocktail of antidepressants. It never worked. My life was never turned around. I went to Amsterdam. I decided I'd give it a go. I never felt so liberated and happy. My mind was instantly eased. I felt normal again. I now smoke it occasionally, and I really wish I was able to contribute to society rather than the black market. The money I spend could go towards the NHS, education and so on, but instead it's going to criminals. I've not been on antidepressants for a year and my life has improved drastically. I feel decriminalisation with public education is key, not only to save the taxpayer money, but also to stop normal citizens having to communicate with drug dealers who try to push other harder drugs onto you. Legalise and legislate, not criminalise. That wasn't something we touched on too much. No, it wasn't. And it is quite an important issue, isn't it? The sort of medical medical uses of marijuana which i think marijuana in general is legal 
in about five American states, but I think medical marijuana is legal in a lot more of them. And in Vancouver, as it turns out, this comes from James, who says, Hi, just listened to your episode on the decriminalisation of drugs, and it got me wanting to contact you. I'm a Brit living in Vancouver, um, in which marijuana is all but fully legal in name. There are dispensaries on every street, and there was even a small marijuana festival falling on the 20th of April, 420. Do you know about that? I don't know about it, no. So I'm I'm not hip to the drug lingo, but I know 420 is, is Cannabis Day, and um, I'm not quite sure what it relates to. It's also my birthday. Oh. Yeah. And Adolf Hitler's. So it's nice that they're at least reclaiming Hitler's birthday. We'll celebrate birthday. yours, I think. Yeah. Uh, well, look, we'll, we'll, we'll put that in the diary and um, buy you an extra miso and chocolate cookie. Great. <laughs> maybe we could go to Amsterdam to celebrate. Yes, yeah, maybe. Um, Let's, uh, James continues, but I felt um, you didn't quite cover the aspect in your podcast, was the, the medical aspect of legalisation. My girlfriend had a spinal operation about a year ago and regularly suffers from recurring pain in her lower back. She's been prescribed strong prescription drugs from her doctors to combat the pain, but the medicine she finds most effective are CBD pills, which is the uh, the chemical uh, we talked about with Neve in the marijuana. Um, she swears by them for their pain relief and they have no noticeable side effects, unlike equivalent medicines she uses, such as cocodamol. They also work wonders for pain relief from her endometriosis. Um, there are countless testimonies from advocates of marijuana-derived medicines and I believe it's another string to the bow in reasons not only to decriminalise it, but to mass-produce its countless well, applications. Look, it's definitely an important and and it was a gap last week uh, and you know I, I actually think last week's episode we got a lot of reaction to it i think it did cover a really important issue that isn't talked about enough or at least uh, frankly enough by politicians but i think this medical aspect is a, is is an important other plank to it uh, do you have something uh, i have one actually but in on, on a slightly different note and and it goes like this it's from anonymous uh, who signs uh, herself sleepless in southeast london dear ed and jeff i'm hoping you can give me a reason to be cheerful this week by helping me out with some relationship advice I've oh this been... is my speciality uh, yeah i that's why i'm asking you i've been in an on-off relationship with a rather handsome man for a couple of years now he's smart principled kind stubborn complicated and of course a proud socialist and huge ed Miliband fan we've recently come to a bit of a crunch point in our on-off relationship this man is unsure if he can commit to me properly because dot 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 I didn't vote for Ed Miliband in the 2015 general election. I wanted to get your opinion on this as someone he admires and respects, and perhaps the only one that can break us out of this deadlock. Do you think this is a credible reason not to be with someone? Ed, have you, can you forgive people that did not vote for you and have subsequently come to realise the error of their ways? P.S. Love the podcast. It's really important, this one, from Sleepless in South (laughs) London. You should tell him that from me that uh, he definitely should uh, forgive you. Um, You know, you made your decision. Yes, you made a terrible mistake, but you know, <laughs> but I we, for, I forgive you and so should he. But we don't know which way she voted. I mean, there's a... There's well, she a, might have voted for UKIP. Right, yeah. I mean, there's a, I don't it's think a, prob- a sliding I think probably, scale, isn't it? I think the very fact that she's taken the trouble to sort of write to me about this so you suggests th- what a decent person she is. <laughs> you think the contrition is, is real here? Contrition is real and, and should be taken into account by the court. <laughs> You're coming across as such a magnanimous, decent human being. Uh, yeah, well, I've got to try and pretend. We're really humanising you here, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, exactly. We're, 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 we're making progress. I'm doing for you what Jimmy Fallon did for Donald Trump. Thanks very much. Can I ruffle your hair? No, you definitely can't. Uh, Only at Christmas. There was... <laughs> or maybe on your birthday, if you're really lucky. In Amsterdam. Um, 
There was this this other one, which is also anonymous, who says... Um, For reasons that will become obvious, listeners. Yeah. Um, at some point between episodes five and six of Reasons to be Cheerful, uh, which would have been air pollution and drugs, right? So post-air pollution, pre-drugs. Coming out of air pollution yeah. into drugs. Yeah. I had an inappropriate dream about Ed. How should I put this? Um, nothing was left to my imagination. It was like he had a very photogenic stand-in for his derriere. I'm not quite sure I appreciate... Well, it's sort of backhanded, no pun intended, sort of <laughs> <laughs> insult that, really, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, uh, they, they, they do add, this person does add, um, I, I, not that I know what Ed's real derriere looks like. He may or may not need a stand-in. Well, that's uh, good. At least she's sort of... There's there's a bit more, um, although they add, I, I feel like I've done too enough, much already. Actually. Um, I woke up feeling embarrassed and wondering how I'll ever be able to listen to Ed on the podcast again without feeling super awkward. I mean, I like Ed, but I've never thought about him in the way that he appeared in my dream. Thankfully, time heals all wounds. And by the time episode six was available, I'd gotten over this risque dream. Look, I think the most important thing is that she made a very wise decision to remain anonymous. That was the best decision she made. Are you not worried that this idea of um, uh, slightly erotic dreams about you is now planted in the heads of other podcast listeners and it might become a thing? You might be haunting people's dreams. Are are you thinking that we're sort of engaged in some sinister plot? Yeah. That we're sort of, you know, what's that, the kind of, you know... Subliminal advertising. Subliminal advertising, that's the thing I was searching for. (laughs) No, anyway, I think we should move on. Okay. Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcasts or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. And here to pitch ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful, comedian Tiff Stevenson. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hello. hello. And you've, you've been around the world. And, and I, 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 I have so much luggage. Uh, by the end of it, yes, I've been. So ready, deep breath. I went, flew from London to Vegas, Vegas to LA, from LA to Sydney, to Sydney to Tasmania, back to Sydney, to San Francisco, to New York, to Galway, to London. And will you tell us about the stand-up you did on the plane as well? Oh, yeah. I um, <laughs> I did um, I did this festival for Virgin Atlantic to launch their fleet-wide Wi-Fi. Does that mean that now when you go on Virgin Atlantic planes, you can get your emails? Oh, yes. I mean, that's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is not something to be celebrated. No, it's one of the things to enjoy about a flight that you've completely... Uh, Cut yourself off. Yeah, yeah. So were you doing it to the passengers on the plane? No, they. some of them sort of got involved. Right. It was kind of like Instagram posts. I was right. doing I was doing yoga and Pilates in upper class bed. So I'm sure <laughs> wow. the people who'd really like paid a lot of money to be on that service, uh, while I'm like just kind of messing around might not have been <laughs> overly happy but it was fun it was it was it was fun so you brought some ideas with you to pitch to uh, to pitch ed what's your first one i have right i've got a few let's start with um i think this should be compulsory i think every man should have compulsory lessons on how to pay a compliment and what a compliment actually is right so in the light of all the stuff that's going on at the moment around the world uh, with boundaries and men and women, I think it would be really useful. I, and I spoke about it a little bit in my show this year um, because often I'll, I'll get sort of tweets from someone going, oh, I saw you on Mock the Week or whatever. Um, I thought you were 
you were really funny. And am I allowed to say beautiful? I don't know what the rules are anymore. So you've got guys going, I don't know what the rules are. You can't even pay a compliment. How are you supposed to chat a woman up? Like, uh, like as if there's no difference. Mm-hmm. So my proposal is that we that we have lessons. And my first lesson would be that just as a general rule, here's how you compliment a woman. You could say to any of us, any woman, something along the lines of, you look lovely and we might say thank you and then we owe you nothing. Right. Also, if the compliment shouted from the top of a building or out of a moving car, <laughs> if the Doppler effect applies, then it's no longer a compliment. It's just street <laughs> harassment. So I think that's what we should do. We should have compulsory lessons. All right. What's your next one? Oh, okay. Uh, morning cat videos to be emailed to everyone. I love cat videos. You do. You, you're yeah, quite one well for a I cute do. animal video, aren't you? But you like, I thought it was a sign of my age that I liked these animal videos. Well, isn't there an old tradition of prayers in Parliament first thing in the morning, which is becoming less and less relevant? Maybe they could do cute animal videos in Parliament first thing in the morning before before that. On like a big screen. Yes. Yes. (laughs) To make everybody nicer to each other. Yeah, Yeah, just but it'll be less likely to be Yabu if you see cute animal Yeah. Yeah, there's something in that tiff. I think. Yeah, there's yeah. definitely something in it. Okay. Make the world a better place. Yeah, I yeah definitely. Make at your, more at your work, please. Just to have that, even if it only lasts for ten minutes or an hour, just to set your day up before you look at any news or read anything else. As soon as the alarm goes off, one animal video to to Great make, plan. make you happy. We'll have it. Um, all right. What, what else? Oh, okay. These these are um. So so uh, I'm, I want to ban on. This is a bugbear of mine mm-hmm. on the phrase. So there's one and another one's come up recently, but the phrase speaking as a mother is I don't have kids, but I've started opening a lot of my conversations with that because I feel like it gives weight to whatever bullshit opinion <laughs> I'm about to spill forth. So especially if it has nothing to do with having kids, that's better. You know, like speaking as a mother, I don't think we should do a trade deal with China, that kind of thing. Um so I feel like it's that kind of moral one-upmanship, but there's a new one, As a Father of Daughters, mm. which uh, has come out recently. And it's kind of like, how about just to have your opinion? Stop pre- you As know. a human being. Yeah, yeah, just as a human, what do you think about this? And stop putting at the front all of as these sort of caveats. As a huge cat lover. Yes. As a huge cat lover, yeah. As a person that watches cat videos, <laughs> I'm not sure how I feel about Catalonia being independent. You know, like what? It doesn't, doesn't make any sense. Um, so that would be that. And, you know, as a father of daughters is a new one that's that's come up. Yeah, you know? so, we, we, so we're going to ban prefixing opinions. Yeah, yeah, okay. with, with something about like, you know, the people around you as opposed to you it's the opposite but, of woke isn't it yes it's, because woke is sort of admitting kind of privilege and so mm. on but this is sort of claiming privilege isn't it yeah it's kind of like it's, it's the if it's the opposite of woke it's sleep then or unwoke <laughs> yes that if it was trump he'd say unwoke woke because he speaks in new speak doesn't he yes he's unwoke he's ungood he's he's not good um but yeah so it's it is the like in some ways, it shows like kind of gender equality now that dads are saying as a father of daughters, because women have long been defined by whether or not, you know, we choose to have children. <laughs> so in, in that way, the fact that as a father of daughter has come along, but I still don't, I still don't think it's good. Mm. I still don't like it as an idea that you need to qualify any statement or opinion on a thing with, you know, that you, the fact that you have a family or not. Uh, Tiff, when, um, can people go see you? You doing anything? Uh, I have some tour shows. Um, probably best to check my Twitter feed at Tiff Stevenson or uh, via my website tiffstevenson.co.uk. And uh, yeah, I've got an Instagram, but I don't really understand it. I'm a words person. I'm not really a pictures person. I'm a words person. So yeah, come find me on those, and, you, and you'll get all my tour dates and stuff. Thanks so much for coming in. Oh, thanks for having me. 
Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So thanks to Tiff and uh, to an amazing phalanx of guests this week. It, it was it was a great selection. It was a great selection. But thanks to Alan Williams, thanks to Ruth Davidson, and thanks to Anna Barker too. Really great to have them all on. And I also think this will have helped us make considerable inroads into the youth demographic audience, Ed. Definitely, but I, you know, I care about policy purity, Jeff. It's not about <laughs> ratings. It's not about ratings or awards. And I want to acknowledge the awards that you've got up on the shelf because I didn't do it before when I went on about being nominated for an award. You've got a whole array of awards I'm, I'm very next hum- to your porcelain dog. So, yeah, thanks to all our guests this week. Thanks to Emma Corsham for producing our podcast. Thank you, as ever, but especially this week, to Alex Weiss-Price, who does the research and, and finds the guests. And, and that was really something. He really pulled it out of the hat this week. Yeah, I think I said, oh, maybe we should get somebody on who was in the debate in uh, 1968, thinking, well, how are we going to find that? And Alex pretty much immediately did. So it was great to have Alan on. Really gives a lot of insight into how you work in that. <laughs> know, exactly. said, find me somebody from 1968. I didn't throw anything. <laughs> Uh, thanks to Lindsay Todd uh, also Gail Lofthouse was our announcer James Deacon made our eye dance Ed Seed provided the music and Emily Power um, designed our artwork I think we, we should also do a special thank you to Sarah my your, wife your wonderful wife who puts up with me and the team trooping into her house every Thursday I think now that now, now that you've got the message about taking your shoes off I think it's I think you think it's, it's going to be better yes yeah. okay um, we'd love to hear from you if you've got any thoughts on things we should feature on the podcast email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com Find us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or on Facebook, facebook.com stroke reasons to be cheerful podcast. Um, and you know, at the end of Crime Watch, they say don't have nightmares. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's very important. Don't have dreams. Well, don't don't have dreams about Ed. Yeah. In the or light Jeff. of yeah, in the light of some of the stuff that we've talked about earlier. Um, so here we go. You ready? He's been Jeff Lloyd. He's been Ed Miliband. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. Mm-hmm.